welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I'm Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today I am talking to Dr. Seth Barty, an adjunct instructor at the history program at SNHU and at a variety of other institutions who is in the middle of a couple of publication projects. Today we're going to talk about his background, what life is like as an adjunct instructor and as an academic writer, and his advice for students looking to follow in his footsteps. I'm also introducing a new topic into the mix this week. I'm going to ask these visiting historians to recommend an item of historical interest to them. This could be a random fact, a book, an article, a museum exhibit, or anything else history-related. So stick around. And for now, onward. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Seth Barty. Um, I'm an adjunct um, instructor in the field of history, um, PhD in American Intellectual History graduate uh, from Virginia Tech in uh, spring of 2014. And what is your academic and professional background? Yeah, so um, it's kind of interesting. My um, bachelor's and master's degree are sort of that history political science route. Um, uh, my, my BA was history and political science. Um, master's degree, straight up history, and uh, my graduate advisor, my, my thesis director at that time, he uh, was sort of on the brink of cultural and intellectual history. And uh, I'm in my MA program and things are going pretty well. And he said, you know, have you thought about, you know, PhD or doctoral work? And um, I was like, well, you know, it's sort of a dream, but I didn't necessarily know if it was possible to do so. And uh, so he recommended, he said, well, here's what I want you to do. Here's my plan for you. He said, I want you to sort of choose two programs to apply to, just two. And uh, one was sort of a traditional intellectual cultural history program. And uh, one was actually an interdisciplinary PhD program at Virginia Tech. And it just happened to be that... Uh, Tech was a lot closer than the other school, and it ended up working out really well. So my background, um, depending on what context I'm in, how I'm sort of looking to sell myself, I generally call myself an intellectual historian, meaning I focus on ideas of you know public intellectuals, writers, poets, um, but then I also have sort of have that cultural history background, and I've read my Foucault and. Eugen Weber and cultural Marxist and the Frankfurt School. So, um, but if if I really want to sell myself for the big job, I say I'm an interdisciplinary historian or an interdisciplinary humanist. So that's sort of the large background of Seth Barty right there. So, what are your um, research and teaching interests? Again, pretty pretty broad. Research interests tend to be American and European intellectual. Uh, one of the great things about my program at Virginia Tech is that we were required to teach at least two, if not three, fields before we could graduate. So I taught in the fields of history, humanities, and religious studies. So on the research side specifically, my dissertation covered the history of conservatism in the United States from 1953 to 2010. And at that point, I was telling someone the other day, I didn't know it, but as I was doing oral interviews in around 2010 or 11, I came across a group known as the Alternative Right and um, have interviews and have a dissertation chapter. And recently someone 
at Oxford University Press found out that I had a chapter on one of the founders, and so I'm sort of revising it for publication. Teaching fields very, very broad. I mean, I have taught everything from Western Civ, Humanities 1 and 2, Sociology of Religion, American Government, at other schools where I teach. I teach specialized graduate courses in intellectual history. I've taught early modern Europe. Um, and in the fall, I'm teaching a methods course titled The Age of Fracture, where we'll look at sort of the 90s and 2000s. So there's a very broad background there. And I also, too, I, I wrote my master's thesis on John Dewey and his theory or conceptualization of history. And I did some work on Dewey um, at Virginia Tech, mostly Dewey and his aesthetics. So again, very, very, very interdisciplinary background on the teaching and research side. You've uh, got me intrigued with your study of the uh, the rise of the right. My doctoral dissertation was somewhat tangential to that, I suppose. It was on the rise of environmental regulation in California while Ronald Reagan was governor. And okay. so the dissertation kind of traced the intersection between conservatism and environmentalism in the 1960s, early 1970s, which of course the intersection was a lot closer back then than it is today. And so it, it's, um, it, it, was, it was very interesting to study that Reagan, who was kind of held up as one of the founders of the new right, uh, quote unquote, was in office in California at the time that California became the national leader on environmental regulation. So it was interesting. And, and um, I'd be curious to see what, what, uh, what work you've done on that. So I, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that publication. It's interesting to know too that Richard Nixon, right? I mean, here's the one of the get the you've got the EPA and NOAA during that time created during yeah. his presidency. So it's sort of an there's an irony there, especially once we see the new right in the '80s. Yeah, and the theme that I traced in my dissertation was that uh, conservatives are were, were happy to in, to regulate envir the environment when it comes to things like clean air, clean water. It's just that when environmentalists seem to go a bit overboard and start talking about, you know, we can't allow development in this area because of this rare endangered species or something. At that, at that point, it seemed to, the environmentalists seemed to overreach. And at that point, conservatives kind of turned their, tur turned away from environmentalism. I was able to trace that using Reagan's uh, occasional newspaper columns and all that, that he would wrote in the mid to late seventies before he ran for president. And, um, you could see that development in his writings is that uh, back in the 60s, he was all about clean air, clean water. But then he started kind of ridiculing, you know, like the desert or the Delta smelt, uh, these fish that were holding up development of the waterways in California and all of that. So it's interesting to see that development happen. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. And so you mentioned a minute ago that you're going to be um, publishing uh, at least a chapter here. Uh, that's one of the things we haven't really talked much about in these in these podcasts yet is the actual publication process for academic publishing. Could you go into that a little bit and talk about how that process works and how you have encountered that process? Yeah, so it's kind of, I would say, um, interesting. You know, uh, there are times, I think, one of the things I would tell people, you know, and a lot of times you hear that it's better to be lucky than to be good, right? I've been involved with the society for U.S. intellectual history almost since its creation in 2008, 2009. It just started as a blog, and um, it was the first conference I ever participated in as a result of being involved in that throughout my time doing MA and PhD studies. Um, I was able to make several friends who got to know my work, even read my dissertation, and so um, one of those people 
you know, they'll have editors that'll come to them and say, hey, you know, I'm looking for someone who has a chapter um, on this person. At this time, the person I wrote a chapter on is a guy by the name of Paul Gottfried. He's known as sort of being the founder of paleoconservatism. And uh, my friend says, hey, I know a guy actually who has a dissertation chapter just sitting there um, on Paul. And so I'm revising it now, and I think it's publication overall. It's uh, called something it's something do, to do with the resurgent right, right? Whatever the terminology they're going to use now to talk about it. And so, yeah, you know, the 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 most difficult thing about publication, and I think that a lot of students don't realize. I, I thought when I was an undergraduate, I thought you know, being a historian is going to be just like Robin Williams' character in Goodwill Hunting. You know, I'm going to sort of write and research and you know go and hang around in Cambridge Massachusetts and I don't know if I ever thought I would teach an Ivy League but you know that was sort of that that was my conception of what it would be like to be a historian you were going to live once you get into what mind and all that yeah I was going to do that and right. you know talk about Van Gogh and Picasso and occasionally publish an article but you know the the biggest sort of difficulty in publication is not desire um, or anything like that but it's time you know, I'm married with three children. I teach at multiple schools, which I'm, I'm glad to have those teaching opportunities too. But time is, is the really, it's the difficult thing because when I was writing my dissertation, when you're in graduate school, I mean, I think my load was one course per semester with a stipend. And so even though my wife and I weren't wealthy, we at least knew, hey, you teach these two courses per academic year and, uh, you know, the rest of the time you write and research. Well, and you've got time to go through the journals and go through the stacks and keep up with the literature and maybe write. I, I don't know. I want to say I maybe wrote four, five hours a day. You know, now it's difficult to get four to five hours a week. Yeah. So that can be the main difficulty. Finding the opportunity. I mean, if you're a go-getter, and this is what I tell my students, you know, generally I think on the pu the publication side, you can find opportunities, but it's having the time. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Also, I've my publication background. I've mainly been publishing in journal uh, articles, which is or book reviews, which is a much smaller process than publishing a book. And it's it's a very strange process. It takes forever, regardless of what type of document you're producing. But it is an interesting process to uh, go through. And so you are revising a chapter of your dissertation. This is going to be a chapter in a collected work. Is that how that's going to work? Or are you are you developing this chapter into a full blown manuscript? No, no. This, this so this chapter um, is just going to be for a collected work. I, I've got a couple of different presses that are interested in my in in me revising my dissertation into a book. But you know, again, the way that my committee had me write my dissertation was very technical. Which there's even a debate about that now. Some committees will say, "Well, you need to write this towards." you know, sort of this basic books kind of model. It's ready to go. It's consumable for the general reader. And it's got enough of that sort of technical jargon that, that also the experts feel like they're reading a monograph and not just a book. But my committee, they, they, they wanted a technical kind of dissertation, which came out to be almost 400 pages. And so I've got the methodology chapter and I've got all the, lit you know, the literature stuff. And you can easily go through and see the sort of the, the trajectory of the literature that's there. And I think that's important. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'll say if I could go back again and rewrite it, I don't know if my committee would let me 
rewrite it in another way. It ended up being a strong dissertation, but as you know, a strong dissertation for a five-person committee is not necessarily the same as for you know one or two people at a press and say, well, I want this to read like Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind or something like that. Yeah, it's definitely one thing. I mean, writing a dissertation for a committee, that committee has to read it. <laughs> so that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody else in the world would actually want to read it in its current form. And so I have seen a lot of debate among historians lately who have been talking about how the American style of writing dissertations, where we write a very technical dissertation, where we lay out the methodology and agonizingly lay out all of the historiography and all of that for the dissertation. But then once we go to publish it, we always have to basically just delete all that stuff because publishers aren't interested in that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so there has been a kind of a, a fairly recent, I think, debate among historians about dissertations that maybe we should change the model a bit to try to go back towards the kind of publication ready type model like you're talking about and I wish they would because it's just it's just unfortunate that that they put that a lot of students have to go through the kind of rigmarole of the methodology and historiography and all that and then they just have to tear it all away once they go to publish the thing I think it makes a lot more sense to make it more publication ready to begin with and you know there's another thing that I think in the conversation too you know it really um can be specific to one's committee. Um, you know, generally the, I think the path for a lot of us is, you know, for a period of, I think my writing took maybe a year and a half. And so I'm writing these chapters and I'm getting constant feedback, um, on everything from several people. But then once you graduate, all of a sudden you're like in the doldrums or no man's land. And, um, that can be difficult too, you know, because then you sort of have to get volunteers um, to give you feedback and, and that kind of thing. And so that can be, you know, and then, and then, but, and then I've had other, um, you know, other friends and other programs, um, you know, whose advisors have sort of taken on the role of sort of co-author and they'll really sort of help them sort of carry that to a publisher. And so that's nice. And, and there's, there's really no way to go into a program and say, Hey, by the way, you know, will you help me do this after the fact that you, that might be a good question to ask if you went into a PhD program, maybe I would have asked it uh, if I were doing it now, but, um, you know, so, so there's sort of that process that happens afterwards where you've gone through all this and, um, you're sort of weaning yourself away from that committee in a sense too. Um, as strange as that may seem, but I think you'll find a lot of PhD students who have just graduated and that they'll sort of have the same kind of feeling. Yeah, there is, there is a sense of getting kind of cast loose once you're once you graduate um, in the writing process, but also in the teaching process. And you mentioned before that you are an adjunct instructor for SNHU and a, and a variety of other institutions also. Um, so what is life like as a uh, prof professional adjunct instructor or at least a full time adjunct instructor, depending how you want to phrase it? Wow. Um... Have you got a couple of hours now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I so, do. I don't know about the listeners, but I do. <laughs> it um, it's challenging. Uh, I I think. I mean, so what's it's it's a very challenging job market, as you know, for several reasons. Um, you know, I, I teach at several institutions where um, I actually, there are professors who have been there 
for decades. And I'm at, I, I can at least think of four professors right now that I know that are still teaching well into their 80s. So there's almost like this tremendous backlog, as you know, that's sort of happening of those people who feel like they just kind of want to stay in those jobs um, for a very long time. That's fine. Um, being an adjunct, well, you know, one of the issues is that pays not always fantastic and so generally if you want to pay your bills and maybe have a little bit of a surplus you'll teach in multiple institutions um, there have been semesters where I have actually taught 10 courses um, at four institutions and not only that but have driven commuted about an hour and a half a couple of days a week so you know be prepared for, for students I mean that if you really love history and you love the humanities and, and obviously I hope students do they'll pursue that but um, I think right now the average even after PhD the, the average time to find a full-time job I mean I've read heard um, talked about in discussion is about five to six years so it's not an easy career to pick it's not like goodwill hunting i mean you're not you know just going to go and you get that phd and you maybe automatically get the job some people do generally the people that walk out and automatically get the jobs are those that may have a dissertation director who's a well-connected person and they might say hey you know um you know janice is a great student of mine she might be a good fit for you at you know kansas or oklahoma or somewhere like that um, but generally for the people that have to enter onto the job market because there is this tremendous backlog because it is tremendously competitive um, you know even a lot of the jobs that were jobs that one could have walked into maybe like say a junior college you know now even they're starting to realize hey we can get PhDs now and if you look at um, you know a lot of junior colleges even regional university even regional research universities places like Illinois State, Wichita State, Northern Iowa. I mean, they're getting people that are coming from places like Stanford, Northwestern, um, you know, even some of the Ivy League schools. So uh, it's a very, very competitive market. Being an adjunct is not easy either. Um, again, hours can be very long depending on how the school pays. You might have one school where you have classes with a cap of 20. Some schools it might be 50. Um, research universities, big schools, you know, the Ohio State's, the Michigan's, they pay the best. But generally, they don't keep adjunct folks on because they have a steady flow of graduate students. So most um, adjunct instructors will, you know, head to um, smaller regional and community college um, schools and liberal arts. Again, if you really want to teach and it's not bad, I like teaching. I like doing that. It's great. Um, you know, it, it can be very rewarding, but um, finding that sort of elusive tenure track job can be a challenge. Yeah, I did um, adjuncting for, uh, I want to say, four or five years after I graduated. And I did the full-time adjunct thing where I, I think my max, I think I taught nine classes at five okay. different campuses. So I feel your pain. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, it's not glamorous. It's, 
as you say, it's a lot of work uh, for relatively low pay, at least per class. I mean, if you're racking up nine or ten classes, you're doing okay financially, but you just you don't have much time to do much of anything. And so it's it is a very odd life, and it's unfortunately because of the job market, like you say, where. Uh, graduate schools are still churning out graduates at the same rate they have since what the 1970s but mm -hmm. hiring has hiring pretty much tanked for tenure track back during the Great Recession if not earlier and has not cut has not picked back up ever since since universities have realized they can they can hire adjuncts by the thousands and pay them sure. <laughs> pennies on the dollar so it, it is a very frustrating and difficult job market and um, I haven't heard stats lately on the the, the length of time that you sh that it takes to find a full time job, but those numbers you said sound right. And uh, if it happens at all, and some people it'll happen right away, some people it'll happen after a couple of years, some people it just never happens because sure. of luck or I don't know lack of networking or just you know it just doesn't work out. Um, the other problem that that graduates have, of course, is that sometimes the one job that they that they that fits for them might be you know, three thousand miles away, and you just might not be willing to get up and leave. So it's a it's a, it's a very difficult job market. It is, and and you know, when I, so so Southern New Hampshire, if you get hired, is a great place to teach, as you know. And there's a lot of regularity. The supervisors are very very good, but you know, as you know, as being an adjunct, a lot of times, you know, if you're in a place, they might cut budgets, or you know, there's of course there's there's all kinds of uh, horrible adjunct stories we could tell. I'm not going to tell any of those, right. but we there's never on that route. <laughs> you, you don't need to go down that route, but you know, you just never know. I mean, right? I mean, you're literally your teaching load could change overnight. Yes. Um, so you have to find classes fall, spring, and summer. I mean, that's you have to do that. That's um, and that's sort of one of the difficult difficult aspects. But anyway, but yes, it's tough. Yes, <laughs> we can leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, so I know that we're running short of time, but um, do you have any advice for listeners who are thinking about going on to grad school or who are thinking about trying to publish their historical writing or, or any of the things that you've been up to? Do you have any suggestions for listeners that uh, might want to follow in your footsteps? You know, I, I do. I, some of the people that I saw who were the most successful out of graduate school um, were bivocational. And what I mean is that especially those that wanted to stay in the realm of higher ed um, would intern in other departments, academic advising, human resources, um, even, you know, academic affairs. Um, I had a friend who got, I can't remember what the position was, but his background was being a resident advisor. And somehow he was able to use his position as RA um, and go on. And now he's dean somewhere after three years out of um, uh, school. I mean, we graduated at the same time. And so I know that there's not a lot of time in graduate school, but if you can go and you can um, intern in another department, that's just going to be another feather in your cap. And again, that wasn't something that, that's generally not something that a lot of academics would encourage just because they didn't have to do it or they don't think about it. But if you can be bivocational, especially in higher ed, um, you know, if any school knows that they can hire you and you can do multiple things um, or they can hire you in sort of in multiple departments, that's always fantastic. Or you could be a possible administrator. 
um, having that extra experience is, is yeah, always great. A... Yeah, that's um, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, if if you end up as an administrator, a lot of administrators teach part time, so you don't necessarily have to mm -hmm. walk away from your hist history training if you go the administrator route. There are lots of other opportunities sure. you can do, and still scratch that history itch if you get that. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think I think for students, my my recommendation okay. always is the, um, my for for students, I always recommend, hey, um, you know, the the best way to sort of keep ahead of your field and make sure you're always in the publishing game, keep up with that historiography. If any, if you can, I mean, if there's one journal you like, Modern Intellectual History Reviews in American History, uh, American Historical Review, whatever. Um, you know, I, I always, you know, as I teach the capstone course uh, in the history department here, um, I'm always telling the students, hey, master that literature, get the key books. And uh, so I find that to be on the publishing side. If you can always sort of be in conversation with the historiography, then there's always, I think, room for publication somewhere. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so do you have time to share with us a, uh, a recommendation for a book or article or something that you've been interested in lately? Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading, um, well, I really like methodology, so that was one of the very strange things as an undergrad that told me that I might be uh, a fit for a historian one day. I'm actually reading a, uh, a technical biography on the... Uh, Historian Hayden White, who I'm sure you know, Rob, he's sort of um, uh, one of these guys writing in the 1970s that really writes about the blurring between um, fic, you know, fact and fiction and postmodern history and that, that kind of thing. And one of the things when I was in graduate school, I really, I read Hayden White's content of the forum where he talks about the importance of narrative and he was one of the people that would argue against the sort of arch postmodernist Michel Foucault. Um, and so I'm reading a really technical biography of him right now, um, written by a guy named, I think, Herman Paul. Um, so Hayden White, someone whose work I enjoy, if you enjoy, you know, historical methodology, the philosophy of history, um, which those two can be either two separate or one and the same kind of things. Uh, uh, Paul's bi technical biography. I say technical because it is jargon-heavy. Um, biography of Hayden White is very good. Yeah, we. I think. Um, yeah, the students actually read a excerpt of a Hayden White um, Hayden White writing in the History Five Hundred One Historiography book. Um, nice. I'm drawing nice. a blank at the moment on which which book it's from, but it, yeah, it's it's all about. Um, oh, it's where they're talking about things like the. Um, you know the the fictive turn and um, mm -hmm. um, literature as oh, I'm drawing a blank, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it, it, we do read a, a, an excerpt from him in, in History 501, and he is an interesting writer, and that's that's really cool. Right. One thing that I've been reading lately that um, your your talk actually reminded me of was it's a book called uh, Strom Thurmond's America by Joseph Crispino. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's um, yes. relatively recent. Yes. I think it was just published last year. Um, okay. But it makes the argument that I th that sounds like it might be interesting for your side is that the study of the new right, according to Crispino, should be pushed farther back uh, to include 
like Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats and all that back in the 1940s uh, because this is kind of the prototypical, you know, the state's rights, small government, uh, keep government out of our lives. I mean, there's always been that strain throughout American history, but sure. according to Crispino, sure. we really should be pushing the, 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 the new right kind of literature and narrative and all that all the way back to the, to the 1940s um, as, because it kind of got its start, according to him, as the backlash against desegregation efforts and all of that. So that, yeah, that's kind of, I think, Dan Carter and Lisa McGurr. And, you know, in my own work, I, I try to push, I actually push conservatism back almost as a larger anthro anthropological uh, framework where I actually look, I'm looking back as far as the Catholic counter-reformation. So it's a, definitely a meta-narrative. Oh yeah, um, you're going way back. <laughs> way back. We're talking Charles Taylor type stuff here, but, <laughs> so, uh, but you know, that's the great thing about history, and that's what we always tell our students, right? I mean, they always say, well, there's, uh, you know, all this stuff has been covered. And I said, you know, as we like to say here in the South, there's always more, more than one way to skin a cat. Like anyone, I've never skinned a cat, um, but I imagine if I were going to do so, there are limitless ways to do so. And in that way of history, you know, just like with American conservatism, there's a lot of ways to tackle it. There's book history. There's the postmodern look. There's all, the linguistic avenue, all kinds of stuff. Yep. <laughs> and on the skinning a cat note, I will uh, wrap this up and let you get on with your uh, get on with your day. So right. thank you for, for me. joining me today. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to the listeners for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email. SNHUhistory at gmail.com. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.